Hi, and thanks for joining Interesting People for 20, where in each episode we'll be speaking with people who have stories that are inspirational, motivational, and often truly amazing. This 20-minute quick podcast is meant to be something you can listen to at lunch, on a break, or out for a short walk. We'll hear about achievements, setbacks, and the challenges you might not normally see. Just about everyone has an interesting story if you ask. I'm Eric Cohen, your host. I'm an inventor, technologist, and sometimes cyclist, but most importantly, I love a good story, and I really hope you find my guests as interesting as I do. In today's podcast, we chat with Dan Goldman, the co-founder of Clean Energy Partners, a venture firm that invests in clean energy technologies. When most people think about venture capital, they often think about trendy startups like Uber or DoorDash and companies that make apps or social media sites. But in fact, a significant amount of money flows into the world of climate tech. But is climate change real? And can new technology really have an impact? Hi, Dan. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Eric. Great to see you. Good to see you, too. So you and I met on the bike, but for years, I actually had no idea what you did. So I'm excited to learn more. We hear stories from companies who want to save the planet. We hear about trash on the beach, straws in the ocean, fossil fuels, drilling, coal in the ozone layer. But can you help make sense of where are the biggest contributors to climate change? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, the, the biggest contributors are in the use of fossil fuels, whether it's coal, oil, and gas. And um, when we think about everything derived from those things, whether it's buildings or our residence, residential homes or industry, um, the world is heavily dependent on fossil fuels. And so if we want to make uh, a dent in climate change and do so um, as quickly as possible. All the leading scientists have said we are well behind the eight ball in terms of um, the impact that we're going to start seeing. We need to reduce our dependence on fossil fuel. You're a venture capitalist. You invest in climate tech. What does that even mean? Yeah. So um, climate tech is an emerging new area of the venture capital market. Um, the, the dollar commitments to in, in venture capital to climate tech have been rising. It's an area that basically is investing in technologies that can adjust, address climate change. And so when we look at opportunities um, to invest in new technologies, we do, through, do so through two lenses. One is, can this company be financially successful? Can it grow to scale? Uh, become, you know, the next Google or Amazon, um, grow to a multi-billion dollar company? Um, and can it reduce greenhouse gas emissions? Wow, these sounds like uh, these, are, these are big problems to solve. Where do you think are the three greatest opportunities for new technologies in helping climate change? I think the first one is where a lot of capital is being deployed today, which is electrifying the grid with renewables and uh, adding storage to that. Because we really can't get to a 70% renewables grid or 80% or even what we ultimately desire, 100% renewables grid without having a significant amount of grid scale storage. 
So that might mean that's batteries for short. The second area is um, what I talked about earlier, which is transportation. We need to figure out low carbon approaches to transportation. Electrification is, of course, one really good way to do that. But there are other ways. Using low carbon fuels, for example, is a way to address things like long haul trucking. Long haul trucking is not an easy sector to, to decarbonize and to electrify because you have to have um, uh, charging stations. Trucks aren't willing to sit at a charging station for an hour or two to recharge their batteries. It adds you know, 15,000 pounds to the truck to add the batteries. So that takes away from the cargo. Um, and the performance from electric trucking isn't nearly as good as a diesel engine. So we've been very focused on ways we can decarbonize um, trucking. And this, this also extends to um, agricultural equipment, construction equipment, marine equipment, uh, backup generation. And then the third area is kind of interesting. Scientists tend to agree that the only way we're going to um, get to 1.5 is if we start um, extracting CO2 from the atmosphere. So this is called direct air capture. Um, and we have been looking very extensively at direct air capture as a very interesting technology solution. And there are two ways to do that. There's direct air capture where you're earning a carbon credit and that pays the capital and operating cost of capturing the, the carbon and sequestering it. And then there's another way where you capture the CO2 from the air and then you use it to make a product. We tend to prefer from an investment thesis standpoint, the latter. Um, so taking carbon out of the atmosphere and let's say using it to make low carbon cement is a really interesting area for us. We invest in this company called Carbon Upcycling, which does just that. And so if you can not only take the carbon out of the atmosphere from their stack um, and use it in, in a cement product um, and make a better product, then you're having multiple different impacts to reduce the carbon intensity of cement. And when you talk about carbon capture, I assume you're talking about carbon capture at the plant coming out of the stacks, not creating some giant vacuum that's going to suck up air from the, from the environment and try to clean it, right? Right, right. So in this case, it's not direct air capture, which would be just like you said, a, a vacuum cleaner sucking carbon out of the air in a very dilute manner. Um, this would be actually taking the, the carbon dioxide off of their point, what's called a point source emission. I know that in the, uh, the beverage space and the consumer products category, uh, CPG or FMCG, a lot of, there's a lot of R&D happening to basically decrease the amount of water that you're shipping around the world. So just imagine you get a soda which is which is a bottle with some with some water and some sugary syrup in it. If you could ship that around the world without the water and sort of reconstitute it or create it at the point of dispense or the point of consumption, that might that's a that's a real that's a real savings, isn't it? Yes, I think there's a company trying to do that, which is fascinating. Um, and you just you just think about how much water um, in, in beverage products um, are shipped around the world every day. And, it, and it's got to be an astounding number and it's got to be a huge carbon footprint. 
And so if you could allow consumers to make whatever beverage they want with water from their faucet, um, that's, that's got to be you know, just a game changer. All sectors of society are trying to figure out how they decarbonize their, their systems. And this, this is really a new trend in the last five years. And they're all making very significant commitments to decarbonize by 2030 or, or 2050. Yeah, help me understand. So I hear a lot about that as well. Everyone has something in the news. They've launched a press release where they want to be net zero by 2030. Help me understand what net zero even means to a large corporation. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think um, we have to segment uh, greenwashing from true commitments. And, and right now, I think we're in the early stages of these commitments and we don't know you know, just how the standards are going to be set. But coming back to your question, net zero really means that um, companies recognize that they're never actually going to be able to get to zero emissions within their industrial system, within their supply chain. And you talk about scope one, scope two, scope three emissions, scope one being what you consume, scope two being what's supplied to you that you consume, and scope three being your supply chain. It's incredibly difficult for a company to look back in its supply chain and figure out what the emissions, what their carbon footprint is. So there's you know, an enormous industry at its embryonic stage developing to help companies do this. But ultimately, companies expect that they're going to be buying offsets, um, carbon credits, in order to offset what their, um, their carbon emissions are. And so when they say net zero, it's I'm emitting 100 tons of carbon a year and I need to buy 100 tons of offsets. That will make me carbon net zero. And what does it mean? What, what, do you, what does a company actually do to buy carbon offsets? Are they, they're paying money to someone who's doing what? They're planting more trees? They're, what, yeah. How do you do that? Yeah, well, again, this is an embryonic industry where the standards haven't yet been set, but, um, but many companies are buying offsets from folks who are directly capturing carbon from the air, going back to that example. Or um, to use your example, there is um, uh, forestry offsets, um, which are, are coming into play. I think that's an area that needs a lot of validation around it. Because the incrementality of that forest offset really needs to be carefully examined. And also forests can burn down through forest fires. So what happens to the offset? If that happens, what was the intention of the owner of that forest in terms of cutting those trees down to begin with has to come into play? How do you assess that? So forest offsets are a really kind of gray area that need a lot more um, regulation in my view. Um, but direct air capture is a pretty, pretty um, obvious one. And there are things like obvious carbon reductions from implementation of energy efficiency. Um, so companies like Stripe have been um, in the press recently, Shopify, Amazon. What they're doing is they're actually buying carbon offsets from direct air capture technologies and, and other um, uh, carbon reducing technologies, and um, they're, they're, they're using them for their own businesses. And they're paying very, very high dollars per ton figures to get those offsets. We don't expect that those kind of $1,900 a ton figures are going to last very long. But down the road, you know, 
when this market becomes more normalized and more liquid, you know, carbon offsets could be in the $100 ton per ton range. And that's going to enable a lot of new technologies to come into the market. Is achieving net zero a good thing for the planet or do we need to do better? Well, I think we're going to need to do better. Um, it, it's, it's definitely come out more recently that net zero is not enough, um, that we're going to need to be on a negative uh, pathway to, um, to get to 1.5. So we're definitely going to need to do better. But I think we've got to start somewhere. And just having companies making those commitments is a really good place to start. Um, we are inevitably going to need to do a lot of work in the resiliency area because we're going to have flooding. Uh, we're going to have displacement of populations around the world. Um, so we're going to have migration of immigrants to different countries from different countries. And that's an area that I don't think has even been considered yet. And I think there's a lot of reluctance within the climate tech community to start investing in resiliency when the first thing we need to devote all the money to is, is stopping climate change altogether. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit, Dan, about what you do, which is you're investing in some of these climate tech companies. Uh, can you talk about some of the ones that you're investing in that you're super excited or super passionate about that? I don't know if you can talk about the area that they're in or the actual company names, but could you talk about one or two that you just think are you're really excited about? Yes, absolutely. i Nothing gives me more pleasure than talking about the companies we've invested in because I'm so excited about them. Um, so I'm going to talk about two companies that I would describe in the solar tech area. So one is called Leading Edge. Um, it's actually here in Massachusetts. And what they do is they make an innovative solar wafer. And the wafers that are made go into uh, the cells. The cells go into... Um, to the modules and the modules go into the panels. So that's how you get to a panel that goes on your roof. So the wafers are the first stage in that process. And their solar wafer is a uh, silicon wafer, but it's something that is um, about 50% lower cost than the monocrystalline, one crystal wafers that are made today. And so it's much more cost-effective um, and it's more, uh, ha has higher efficiency. And so we're super excited about the ability to reduce the cost of solar, um, which has already gone down quite a lot over the last couple of decades. And so that's one of our companies that we're, we're super excited in the solar tech area. The other company, which is called Sun Density, um, makes a uh, coating that goes on the solar panel. And so this, this, this coating that goes over the glass basically allows you to absorb more of the blue blue light and blue light is what you convert into energy in a solar panel and so sun density's technology can increase the performance of a solar panel by over 25 percent which is a massive increase in efficiency I mean, we look at solar efficiencies we see you know two percent three percent half a percent to actually have one technology that can actually increase the efficiency by 25% is extraordinary. So still pretty early stage for both of those, but they're showing really promising results. And um, we think, you know, the next couple of years they'll be out in the market. So let me ask you a question just about venture capital, maybe in general. Uh, for those who don't know how venture capital works, 
Can you give a very quick explanation of how venture capital works, uh, where the money comes from, how you're deciding which investment is the right investment? Yeah. So um, the money comes from lots of different places. You, you form a fund, you raise money from could be pension plans, could be endowments, it could be family offices and high net worth individuals, and it can be strategics. And strategics means folks who are in your industry. So in our case, folks like oil companies, utilities, materials companies, we're all participating in the energy ecosystem. They all want to figure out how to decarbonize. The climate tech ecosystem is going to radically change the energy market. And so large companies like Shell and BP um, and Chevron and utilities um, like uh, National Grid um, all want to figure out how to play in this new ecosystem. So they're investing in venture funds and they're investing themselves directly in these companies. So you set up a venture fund and then you start investing in technologies. And in our case, um, our, our thesis is we are very, um, well, it's called deep tech. So we invest really in companies that have deep uh, intellectual property around their technology. Um, and that takes a lot of diligence. So we have a lot of like scientific uh, and technological strong, technologically strong background people on our team who can assess technologies. And we have a, a deep network in the industry to call on experts. And so we do an enormous amount of diligence before we make an investment. Um, and that's, that's kind of in our DNA. We don't necessarily lean toward making software investments. We have in the past, but we, we tend to invest more in um, intellectually deep technologies. You make it sound easy, Dan, which I'm sure it's not easy. So can you talk a little bit about some of the investments that you've made that maybe haven't turned out the way you thought? Yeah, yeah. Um, if, if you don't take risk, you don't have, you know, and fail, you don't have, uh, you're not taking enough risk. So yeah, we've definitely had companies that have struggled to commercialize technologies. Some of them, um, I wouldn't say necessarily had an underlying technology that failed, but sometimes it was the approach they took to go to market, which was maybe too capital intensive, or the market wasn't well developed enough for their technology. So um, we've had uh, plenty of companies in the past who haven't made it. And um, we always tend to reflect on what maybe we should have done better. How could we have supported the company differently? How the company maybe needed to pivot. Um, but certainly in our current portfolio of 18 companies, you know, knock on wood, everyone is doing quite well so far. For you personally, why climate tech? Why are you focusing there? Yeah, I mean, for me personally, um, I, I think the idea of addressing what is an extent, existential risk for humanity is, is really important. And so I'm sort of leveraging not only the carbon emissions from my historical energy background to try to offset them. Like you said, I want to be net zero as well. Um, but I think trying to address like uh, what I see as you know, one of the, the largest risks for humanity and, and, and to do so in a way that is financially successful, because I don't think you can really address such a massive problem without having a prof profit motive um, uh, engaged in that as well. I haven't third heard of that term used the way you just did, personal net zero. 
So as normal people, should it be our goal to have a personal net zero, which is a zero impact on the planet? And and how can how can people do that? I think it is. Um, this is the early days, but I think um, getting into a mental state where you think about what you're disposing of, what you're buying, um, and how you're moving around would really help the planet dramatically. And I think um, there are a lot of apps out there now that help manage you know, and, and monitor your carbon footprint. But everything we do as individuals ultimately is what is contributing to uh, the manufacturing, the production, the industrial uh, waste that is out there. And so everything we can do to create a circular economy, everything we can do to improve our food choices, because food and particularly agriculture, animal agriculture has a massive impact on greenhouse gas emissions, whether it's eating meat, chicken or fish, or um, where we buy our vegetables from, all of that is having a really significant impact. So there are easy things I think consumers can do um, that have an impact on their, their, their personal um, greenhouse gas emissions. And if we do get into a mentality of, can I actually be net zero? And I think that's very hard today. Um, I think that will really be game changing. I think it's super interesting that there are apps that can help you understand basically the, the carbon footprint that you're leaving based on maybe how far you've driven or what you're doing or what you're buying. Um, I'm going to have to look those up. Those sound really interesting. So, I mean, I sold my car because I wasn't using it very much during COVID. I use my bike, as you know, to basically go everywhere or use public transport. Is that really making a difference if many more people did that? Like, does it really have an impact? It is making a huge difference. Um, like I said earlier, transportation is one of the most material greenhouse gas emissions uh, out there. And so when you start at, to add up, um, you know, increase in public transportation and reduction in driving, uh, it, it really does have a ma massive impact. We need to spend more money on making public transportation both affordable and available. And uh, if we can do that, I think uh, that's an area that can have material impact. And certainly cities are, are doing that by um, imposing taxes on cars coming into central business districts. London has some of the highest taxes on, on vehicles. And um, that is really defining what the externality is and charging for it. And um, I think if we can do that, in more cities that, that will drive people toward um, public transportation. And that funding can then be used to um, build out a, a better public transportation system. I wanna thank you for this masterclass on climate technologies and what we as individuals can do. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you, I'm excited to educate your listeners. Thanks again for listening to Interesting People for 20. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please go to ipfor20.com to listen to more, or you can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Keep doing great things. And that's a wrap for today's episode of Interesting People for 20. 